0: audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 945 or 1130 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Our daughter, Rebecca and I, our daughter is uh, just about two and a half. Her name is Scarlett. And recently we've uncovered a, an irrational fear she has. She, she has a terrible fear of feathers. And this came about recently. Uh, our, we have a, a couch in the family room, and it's got these throw pillows on it, and they're feather pillows, so they emit these feathers from time to time. And so we find these tiny little white Feathers are about maybe about like an inch long, and we'll find them, you know, on the couch or on the floor. And so, um, and she's just never really noticed them uh, up until recently. And so I found one of these feathers, and I was sitting there with her. We're playing, and I take the feather, and I just decide to tickle her a little bit with this feather. And she just kind of laughs, and it's just kind of this cute thing. And and I, I can see she's kind of looking at it. She doesn't know what this is in my hand, so I would lay it in my hand, this little white feather, and I say, it's a feather. You can, you can take it. It's just a feather. And just as she reaches for it, I say, here. And the breath from my mouth makes the feather flutter just as she's about to get it. And it's like she's realizing this is an alive creature, okay? Okay. So she was like backing away. She's very concerned and I laugh a little bit. I'm like, no, no, it's just a feather. And I, and I catch it and I put it back in my hand. Like, no, it's just a feather. And I, I tickle myself with it for a second. See, there's, there's nothing wrong. It's just a feather. And, and I, I hold it back up and I say, look, you, you can take it. And so she, this time she's really cautious and she walks up. And I, I make a mistake because just as she reaches for it, I say, it's right here. And this time it flutters at her and she backs up and goes, no feather, no feather, no feather. And she's backing up really concerned and I'm seeing the birth of a new phobia here in my daughter and I did what any you know good parent would do any loving father I chased her around the house with this feather for a few minutes it's possible I took some of her favorite toys in a pile and put feathers all the way around them guarding them I'm not proud of myself she probably needs therapy at this point Um, but this is an actual phobia it's called tyrannophobia the fear of feathers She is not alone in this world. When I was looking up information on tyrannophobia, I actually saw a website for people to go on to find support for tyrannophobia. It's mostly true, what I just said. Um, So several of us have irrational fears. My daughter, it's feathers. Hopefully before she leaves off for college, we've worked through that. She has an irrational fear of feathers. Some of us have, um, we all have different fears. You know, some are afraid of snakes. You know, some are afraid of heights. Um, if, if some of us are afraid of spiders, in fact, if you're not afraid of spiders, what is wrong with you? You have some synapses not working in your brain. Um, so we have all these different fears, but there's actually one irrational fear. One fear. It is irrational. But every human being is born with this fear. Every one of us is born with one fear. In fact, it's so common, we don't even realize it as a fear in operation in our lives. And we certainly don't realize it. Even if we uncover it, we certainly don't realize how irrational this fear is. But it's such a prevalent fear. In fact, what's so powerful about this particular fear is it's during Christmas time. The Christmas story actually shows us what can set our minds straight about this fear. In fact, understanding this Christmas story, the nativity with Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, like understanding the Christmas story is what helps us unpack, it's like the therapy, the longer we stay in that story and understand it, it's like therapy undoing this irrational fear we have. It's like, it's so irrational, it's like fleeing feathers, this fear in our lives. We all have it, but there's something that unprograms it in our lives. We're gonna take a look at that uh, this morning, and we're gonna look in a part of the Bible called the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is in the New Testament. It's a letter written to the Hebrews is why it's called that. It's, it is called Hebrews. It's actually, it's laid out more like a sermon. We call it a book. Um, it was passed around like a letter, but it's really formatted a lot like a sermon. And we're looking at just the very beginning, kind of the opener to this ancient sermon. This is that first generation of Christians, these eyewitnesses of Jesus, many of them. And there, it's a sermon to them. It's written out of that generation. And we're looking at the very beginning and we're doing our pretty much our whole Christmas series through these first couple verses, because it's one of the most beautiful, brilliant, glorious descriptions of Jesus you can find anywhere. And we're looking at these truths and seeing how they play out in the Christmas story. So we're looking at Hebrews. Um, if you'd open to chapter 1, verse 1, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, let's look at just these first two verses this morning. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Here's how He opens up this entire book. This letter, this sermon, here's how he opens it up. He says, a long time ago, God started speaking to humanity. He's spoken to humanity. He's not just created us and just left us off by ourselves to figure it out. No, he's speaking into humanity. And he specifically, he spoke through this group, these this, these Israel, this nation of Israel, through their prophets. He spoke in all these different ways. He spoke through their culture and their laws and he spoke directly through certain people, these prophets. He spoke all through these people and then he says, and then finally, kind of this crescendo, all of this, the way he's speaking was saying, I'm sending a Messiah to save the world. I'm sending someone, the Christ person. I'm sending this person to save humanity from the the evil and the sin and the darkness that's in humanity to save their souls. I'm sending that person. And then finally, he sent Jesus Christ and he spoke through Jesus And it says specifically, he spoke through the Son. Now this idea that Jesus is the Son of God, this is not brand new information to anyone. In fact, it doesn't matter. Maybe you're here and you're in church for the first time ever, Maybe you say, I've never gone to church, and I'm just I'm kind of here visiting. My friend invited me and, and kept inviting me, so I'm just here to get them off my back, and I'm here for the first time. And you've, maybe you've never been in church. Maybe you say, I, I haven't been in church in a long time. I'm, I'm coming back to church because now I have kids, and I want them to get a little religion in their life, and I'm, I'm kind of back to church. It really doesn't matter where you're at in your journey. You may say, I'm not sure where I be, what I believe about God or what I believe about Jesus. But if I say that the Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God, like that's what the Bible claims, that's not new information to you. You've heard that before. But I want you to see the implications of that, that it says next, because this is something that's much more rare. It's said a couple times in the Bible, but it's not something we usually kind of look at Jesus through these lenses. It says, if he's the Son of God, it's kind of using this logic. Okay, there's God, the creator and maker of everything. He made it. Everything belongs to him. There's God. And then if he has a son, if the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that means that Jesus is the heir of everything. It's like he's the prince of the universe. He, he is the heir. It, God made everything, owns everything, so then that means Jesus is the heir. He's walking around as the heir of everything, I mean, let's just take a second and look at Jesus through those lenses that Jesus is the heir of all things. So I, I actually think it's kind of interesting because we have modern day heirs and heiresses that we can see out in the world and we can see how they operate. And I kind of find it interesting how the people who run empires, how they handle their kids and their heirs, so, or their heirs, maybe sometimes not their kids. So for example, uh, Versace, when Versace died, His entire, basically, most of his fortune went to actually his niece. And when he died, um, she was 11, and it was all waiting for her until the day she turned 18. And she turns 18, she becomes the heiress of hundreds of millions of dollars and the entire Versace empire. You know, the brand that like princesses and queens and dignitaries wear, she is the heiress of all that. She gets it all at 18. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine this 13-year-old niece walking around knowing she's the heir, the heiress? So there's other people handled differently. Uh, Bill Gates, you know, they estimate his fortune something in like $78 billion or something like that. And he has three kids, and it's interesting how he's handling his three kids. He has pretty pretty much said he's going to give away the vast majority of his entire empire, and he's just going to set aside $10 million for each of his kids. Now, you think in that perspective, I mean, $10 million is a huge fortune, but in the perspective of the tens of billions of dollars, that's actually pretty small. And he's saying, I, I want my kids, We we have a normal home, he says. And he says, in fact, his kids, the rule in his house is you cannot have a cell phone until you turn 13 years old. And he says his kids come home and they're like, Dad, everyone at school has a phone. I'm the only one without a phone. But that's how he's committed to raise his children, these heirs and heiresses of this empire. There's another one I think this is the most interesting. The the owner of the Ikea empire, he has three sons. They're now um, in their 30s. And the way he's designed for who gets the empire is he's put them all in rotating leadership positions in the Ikea empire, and whoever performs the best gets it all. Thanksgiving dinners are interesting in that house. Okay, So you've got these heirs and and heiresses all handling things differently. But imagine if you're born an heir or an heiress, you are born significant. Okay, can you imagine if one of those Ikea sons happens to walk in the doors of our Ikea off of 595? Okay, can you imagine the employees? They're like, he's here. You know, they're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that he's here. Sir, you can have as many meatballs as you want here. Okay, we got the best ones. We saved them for you. I mean, can you imagine he walks in significant, you imagine what it's like for the heir to walk in? That person is born significant. Even if they haven't inherited it yet, they, are, they have a significance on them from birth. Now what this passage is saying is it's, it's forcing us to look at Jesus through those lenses. We say, yeah, Jesus, the Son of God, we, we're familiar with that, but if we thought of the implications, this is saying if he's the Son of God, he is the heir of everything. He walks onto planet earth and he is going to inherit the planet. So how did he come into planet earth? I mean, think about, think about this idea. He's walking on earth. That means right now it says the scripture tells us Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God Almighty. That means Jesus is not just coming to, to inherit Israel. He's not, just, he's not just inheriting Joseph's carpentry business. He's not just going to inherit Israel. It's not like, okay, Israel's king is here. It's not just Israel. It's not just the Middle East. It's not a couple continents. It's everything. It's the ocean. I mean, we're busy scurrying around on planet Earth saying this is mine and that's yours and I'd like to to have this and your tree is growing over onto my property line and this is mine right here. And we're busy scurrying around saying this is mine and this is yours. It's all Jesus's. Versace. It actually belongs to Jesus. So does Microsoft and Ikea. We're passing it around. Which person is going to get it? And Jesus is like, okay, you just worry about that. We're passing goods and services and money back and forth between us. It's all his. When he walked onto earth, the dust is his. The rocks are his. The ocean is his. Today, we have airspace belongs to this country. And this. It's all his. Every layer of the atmosphere belongs to him. In fact, you and I are part of creation We belong to him too. You were made by God. I was made by God. Your kids were made by God. We all, our bodies, our thoughts, our minds, our souls, our spirits, they belong to the one who made us. He's the creator. They all belong to Jesus. Think about it. The entire globe. But remember, it's not just that planet that belongs to Jesus. It's all the planets. He could walk onto earth and say, I own all this. He could walk onto Saturn and say, I own all this. In fact, that moon, that's fired. Get rid of that moon. I don't want that moon around here anymore. He owns Saturn. He owns Jupiter. He owns the sun. It's his solar system. It belongs to him. But it's not really just the solar system, is it? That's one star in our galaxy. And they say there's something like 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. So he owns 100 billion solar systems. You know, we're kind of impressed if someone owns a hundred billion dollars, Jesus is like, I own a hundred billion solar systems. And that's in one galaxy. They say there may be a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. So when Jesus walks on this planet, he's not looking at the totality of his empire. Here's the globe and there's Antarctica and I own that. It's not the totality of his empire. He's not even walking into a division of his empire He's not walking into one part of it. He's not even walking into one store of it. He's walking into one speck of his empire. It's this entire vast universe that he will inherit that belongs to him. There's this one little galaxy and this tiny little solar system and one puny little planet that have all these tiny creatures running around, passing things around to each other. And he's saying, well, that's part of the gigantic empire that I will inherit. So what was it like? When the heir walked onto this one little speck of his empire. I mean, what was it like when he walked in? Was everyone like, oh, he's here. Let's scramble through the earth. What is the best thing we can find to give him? We've, we have scoured the earth and we offer you this, Jesus. We found it is Nutella. It's our greatest product. <laughs> we have brought this here to you. We found it here. What did we do? Did we just scour the earth looking for the greatest thing we have because he's here, he owns all of the planets and all of the solar systems and all the galaxies and he's at our planet. Here, Jesus, what do you need us to do? What can we do? He's the heir, but look at the Christmas story. What happened when he walked through the doors of his empire? See, the beautiful thing that we see in this Christmas story is you see the unbelievable humble circumstances that he entered into. It's a picture for us. In fact, what's so so beautiful and magical about the Christmas story is you see gl- these glimpses, these hints, these whispers of glory. But it's sheathed in these humble circumstances. Think about the story I mean we think of the, just the nativity scene, Mary and Joseph, you probably have like an inflatable one on your lawn. okay, just think about that scene for a second. It begins by saying that there's that there's everyone has to go back to their. The place where their family is from, they have to go back to where their lineage is from, their ancestry, you return there because all through the empire they're doing a census and so they have to return. And see, this is an interesting thing. There's a little glimpse of the glory of Jesus because uh, one thing that the Jewish people in antiquity, they were meticulous about was their lineage, their ancestry. And so we actually know the ancestry of both Mary and Joseph and it's preserved in your Bible, one in Matthew and one in Luke. And when you look at their ancestry, Jesus' ancestry is really impressive. When you, Especially the one at Matthew, when you look, it's not just, he actually is a direct descendant from David. It's not like his cousins, uncles, twice removed. No, he is a direct descendant great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchild of King David. And it's not just like David and then one of these lesser-known sons, or it's a couple kings and then one of these lesser-known nephews that he's descended from. No, if you look at the one in Matthew, it's every king, all the significant ones down the line through Israel, all the way he's descended from king king after king after king after king after king after king. And so there's this moment where you think, this is going to be kind of an impressive moment for Mary and Joseph. Everyone's gathering back to their place of their birth. They're talking about their ancestry. There's a lot of pride in that. <clears throat> they're looking at their ancestry. Who's, you, know, you wonder, man, are they going to enter into to Bethlehem, which is where David was from? Are they going to enter into Bethlehem and be like, whoa, well, there's Mary and Joseph. I mean, they're kind of like, they're royalty, literally. I mean, that's impressive. But what do we find? You have this glimpse of glory. But what, what happens when they get to Bethlehem? There's no room for them. No one makes room. Oh, Mary and Joseph, oh, well, they're from the royal line. They're like, Pfft. we've got a lot of people here in Bethlehem, we don't care. There's no room for them. It's a glimpse of glory in these humble circumstances. What happens? You see the moment that Jesus is born, you have Angels bursting into the sky and they're heralding the birth. They say, glory to God in the highest. They say, born to you this day in the city of David, you have Christ the Lord. A Savior has been born, they say. What is this? I mean, this is a kingly herald of a birth in this time period. And throughout history, when a king or an heir is born, you would go through the empire you go to every village, every town square, and someone would read a proclamation. The, a king, a prince has been born. Your future monarch has been born that, so that everyone knows that's been heralded at the moment of their birth. What kind of herald is this? You've got bursting into the sky, blinding the shepherds. You have the entire angelic host. You have all the angels of heaven saying, the Christ is here. You have this unbelievable moment of glory. And then how do they describe him? You'll found him, find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a feeding trough. Not born in this incredible palace, born. I mean, you'll, you'll see him crowned with all these crowns and you'll see jewels all around his crib. No, you, they say you will find him laying in a feeding trough. Glory sheathed in humility. Think about the visitors that came to see baby Jesus. I mean, you probably could not get any further polls. You've got these wise men coming, these magi. These are these mysterious, kind of magical, almost at this royalty level. They are advisors to kings from the ancient Babylonian and Persian Empire. They've traveled hundreds of miles. They come in. I mean, the people of Israel and, and Jerusalem, they've probably only heard legend of people like this. I mean, it is so, it, it stirs up Jerusalem so much everyone's talking about it, okay? You've got like the E-channels there telling you every move of the Magi, okay? Today they met with so-and-so and they did this and they talked to King Herod, okay? They play by play throughout Jerusalem of what the Magi are doing and they go into this little village of Bethlehem and they go and they find the, this young family and they they bow down to this little baby and they offer him all these gifts. You have you have dignitaries traveling all around. You see this thing, to bow to him at his birth. What an incredible moment of glory. But you know, they weren't the ones that were given the, the first chance to visit him. It was the shepherds. This is like the lowest of the low. People didn't even trust shepherds. They, they did not want, I mean, can you imagine the difference between Joseph fielding these surprise visitors in his home with his new baby? The shepherds come and they're like, he's like, okay, why are you here? Well, we'd like to see your baby. And he's like, okay, but you know, here, purell first, okay, before you get close to the baby. I'm just staying close to you, Mary. Keep an eye on these guys, okay? Don't get too close to my my new my new baby son, okay? You've got the shepherds, and then you've got these magi showing up. Can you imagine the different reaction they probably had? Oh my goodness, we didn't clean up anything in our house. We don't have any food for you. I'm kind of embarrassed that you're here. And then they bow down and give gifts. You see these glimpses of glory, but you see it sheathed in humility. How did the heir enter into creation? See, what's kind of interesting as you look at these poles, the reality of Jesus being the heir of everything, means that these are big poles to us, this herald of a new king, and this incredible lineage, and these wise men giving gifts, and and then the fact that he has been and he's no home and he's in a manger and shepherds are visiting. I mean, that's like a wide you know, a difference on, on the spectrum to us. But you know, to Jesus, for what he deserved, they're about the same. There's no palace we could find that's deserving of him as the heir of the universe. There's no luxurious setting nice enough to put him in. There's, there's, there's no thread count. Sheets good enough for him. There's no, we couldn't put as much luxury around him as we possibly could. And it's still not deserving of the one who inherits the universe. See, there's something powerful that's being shown us here as we're seeing. Almighty God, we're seeing the sun, the air of everything. We see his unbelievable humility as not just coming down to his creation. He's becoming one of his creation. It's God in the flesh, and he's born into these humble circumstances. It's communicating something powerful to us. See, at the core of the whole story, this is the key that unlocks it. There's a... Um, <clears throat> There's about 100 years ago, there's a writer and pastor from out of South Africa, and he's just a brilliant. His name is Andrew Murray. And he describes humility and pride as really the whole story of humanity. He says God, when he first creates everything, he creates this beautiful garden, And everything is God-centered because he's the creator. And everything is just in awe of God. Everything is made for his glory. And we're happy because that's how we're rightfully made, to be concerned with God, to love God, to be with God, to want to please God, to give our lives and worship to God. We're awestruck by our creator. And it's wired, this this life of worship all all throughout this creation, at its core is humility. It's God-centered. That's how humanity is supposed to thrive. But then what's called the fall, this is where sin and evil and hurt and all the bad things that are in the world, this is where this entered in. You may remember the scene. It's Adam and Eve. They're in this perfect garden, and there's a serpent, a snake, that tempts them to eat this fruit that's forbidden. Do you remember what he says to them? He says, you know why God really doesn't want you to eat the fruit, right? He says, because the moment you eat this fruit, he knows you'll be like him. And that was the clincher. What was going on in their hearts? They're saying, oh, then we'll be significant. That's right, we're not like God. I mean, we're God-centered and we're happy, but we're not like him. It was this drive for greater significance. It was this drive to be somebody, to be like God. And so they took the fruit and they ate it. And that is the core of all sin. It's taking God off the throne, putting myself on the throne. It's this drive to prove to myself that I'm significant. And doesn't that lead to all the sin and hurt and evil? That leads to my selfishness. My greed, my competitive spirit that makes me climb over the people that I love. It makes me drive and drive to neglect the ones that I love. Isn't that selfishness under everything? And this is what the world is doomed to right now. We're doomed to this selfishness that we're born into. It's the sin that dominates this world that's tearing us apart. It was made for humility. It was destroyed by pride. And what is it going to take to restore? Humility. The greatest act of humility by God becoming like his creation. Jesus lived a perfectly God-centered life. He gets nailed to a cross. He's hanging on the cross naked, bleeding, exposed. Not just humiliated by human standards, unimaginably humiliated because he's the son, the heir of all things, and he is crucified on a cross. He's paying for our sins. And he rises again from the dead, saying they're paid for. See, his humility is to save us from our pride. It's we're broken, and he becomes broken to bring healing to us. And so what does God do? We say, yes, God, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And God reaches into our hearts and says, okay, I'm going to start taking that self-centeredness out of you now. I'm going to take that pride, I'm going to replace a God-centered heart, and he goes to work on the inside, from the inside out, and he's making us more God-centered, more awestruck by who God is. This is. He's rescuing us from our sin, from this pride that's destroying our relationship. See, the whole story boils down to this heir. We've got to know he is the heir of all things, but he entered in in such humble circumstances. Why? Because he's saving us from our pride. So what does this have to do with me? See, there's a a fear, an irrational fear that all of us are born into. We're fleeing feathers. See, we're born into this fear, this fear of being insignificant. And we're grabbing for the low-hanging fruit in this world, trying to find significance. We've got those things in our lives that if I get that, then I'll be significant. Then I'll be somebody. Then my life will matter. If I can just get that, if I can accomplish that, if I can be that, if I can wear that, if I can drive that, if I can live there, if I get that, if I can be with that person, if I can get that, we have this fear that we're going to be insignificant, that all of us are born with. We're trying to find that significance. And it's exhausting us. Students, Let's just start here. Students, what is that one thing in your life that you're holding out? If I got this, then I would feel significant. What is it? Well, if I played, if I started on the varsity team, if I, if I um, was the first chair in the band, if I was the, the valedictorian, or if I, if I was you know, the president of this or president of that, if I could just get there, then I would know. If people saw me as I had the the best style, or if I was the most popular, or if I was the homecoming king, or homecoming queen, or if I just had, if I had the most people wanting to be my boyfriend, or most people wanting to be my girlfriend, if I could have, if I could be in a relationship, then I would feel like, all right, I am significant. That's my thing. That's what I'm going out. Just take, take a quiet moment and ask yourself, what is that one thing? What about for the rest of us? What's that one thing? It's that fruit that if I can just get that, then I'll be significant. Is it your career? Well, if the company could just get to this point, or man, if I could just get to this level, if I could just be in this position, if I could get this one promotion, if I could get this one salary level, if I could be known as this, if I could one day transition into this, if I could, if I could make sure that I can retire like this, that's it. That's what makes me significant. That's what makes me matter. Is it family? Oh, if I could just, I'm single. If I could just be dating someone, then I'd feel like I matter. Man, if I could just be married, I'd feel like I mattered to somebody. Man, if I could just have kids, I just, if I could have kids, then I would, I would matter. If my kids could just do well, if they as long as they're succeeding, then I feel like I'm doing well. If I could just have grandkids, if I could just have the family near me, if I could just have these, this family this certain way, then I will feel significant. Maybe it's stuff. Man, if I, could, if I could wear this clothes, if I could always have the newest this, if I could drive this, if I could live there, if I could have this stuff, that proves to me that I've made it, that I'm significant, that my life matters. See, there's this irrational fear that we have that if I just get this, then I'll be significant. Then my life will matter. And you know what? We get weary, so weary of chasing that down. We're so busy with our careers that we've become a workaholic and now we realize there's an even bigger fear lurking that we're neglecting the relationships that we hold most dear, our kids or our spouse. Then we're working so hard and, and even when we get one level, that's never been enough and we're going and we're a workaholic and we're working, 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 working because we're trying to get that thing to feel significant. It's those relationships that they're so important that these relationships are right that I'm suffocating them. Because I'm using that relationship selfishly selfishly, and I don't realize because it seems like I'm serving that poor person but I'm actually selfishly needing that person to fulfill a significance in my life. So I'm so desperate to live at this place or drive this or get that or wear this that my finances are maxed. I've overspent and I am in financial difficulty right now and I am stressed out because the bills keep coming in and all that because I just thought if I got this, then I will feel like I've made it, like I'm significant and we're weary and we're exhausted. Some, there's a brokenness in your life from your past. And if I get this, it will help me not feel broken anymore. Others, there's a dream that I had that's now come crashing down. And I'm not just disappointed, I find myself depressed. Why am I so, I'm not just disappointed, I'm demoralized. Why? Because I was not just looking to that as an opportunity, I'm now realizing I was looking to that as my significance. We're weary and we're broken. Maybe you're at the stage of life now where you're saying, okay, i I'm at the stage of life where now I'm wondering, was this it? All my goals and my dreams, I'm having to let go of some of those now. And you find yourself with this haunting feeling that maybe you're not going to achieve that significance that you wanted. But the fact that the air came in such humble circumstances brings a thrill of hope. Can I share with you who you are? Can I share with you that pursuing significance from this life is like fleeing feathers? That's as, It's as irrational as tyrannophobia. Can I share with you that there is a hope because of this one that came? Can I, can I read to you what that hope is? Let me read to you. It's found in Romans chapter 8. Look at what it says. It says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, look at this, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Do you realize what that just said? God looks at this universe and he sees this one little galaxy and he zooms in on that galaxy and out of the 100 billion stars and solar systems, he found one solar system and this tiny little planet and these insignificant little creatures and he says, but I love those creatures so much, I am making them co-heirs of everything with Jesus. Do you realize who you are? You were born significant. Significant. Do you realize even before you were born, you were significant? Do you realize he had you in mind? He had this entire universe throughout all of time, and he thought of you, your name on this planet right now, and he said, that person is mine. I love them. I want them to know the love that I've given them, the grace. I have arranged their circumstances in their life so that they will find out that I love them and that they are going to co-inherit with Jesus everything. Do you realize that's who you are? There is nothing that you could get on this earth that could even come close to comparing with what you already have. You are an heir because God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, looks at you and says, you are my child and you will rule for eternity with Christ over all that there is All of this one day will be yours. All of this will be ours with Jesus. There is no puny thing they could hang on our head in this life that even comes close to comparing with the fact that you are a co heir of everything in creation. I was um, thinking about athletes and thinking about who is the most decorated athlete. In history, and there's quite a debate with the most who the most decorated athlete. But I think probably there's one person that I think takes the cake as the most decorated athlete in all of history. It's hard to compete with this guy. Here's a picture of him. Uh, anyone know who that is? Bill Russell, famous basketball player through the uh, through the '60s. You can see he's got quite a few championship rings on his fingers. Here's some stats about Bill Russell. Bill Russell, he played for 11 years with, uh, I'm sorry, he played for 13 years with the Celtics, 13 years with the Celtics, and he won, they won the championship. Of those 13 years, they won the NBA championship 11 times out of 13, okay? This guy wins. In fact, even when he was in college, his college team won the championship twice, Okay, he, is the, he was the um, NBA MVP, most valuable player five times. He has, okay, so he has 11 championships. He has more rings than fingers. All right? All right? Um, on top of that, he won a gold medal at the Olympics for basketball. Okay, this guy is, could not be more decorated. The, I think he's the most decorated athlete in history. He's always in the, in the discussion for greatest basketball players of all times. Now, the other day, I was at, at Einstein's bagels. And I was getting some bagels for my family. And I happened to notice up on the wall, there was this award that they were giving out. It was customer of the month. And it had a picture of someone that was customer of the month. And I was thinking to myself, I'd kind of like to be customer of the month. (laughs) I mean, what do I have to do to get such a high honor? Okay, I walk in here, people see my face, they're whispered, that's the customer of the month right there. I mean, people know me by name. They just know what bagel I want. I mean, what does someone have to do to get such a high honor? And I'm thinking, man, everyone's got to feel good. And and I realize there's probably some people that would not get as excited about customer of the month at the local Einstein's as I would. And I was thinking, Bill Russell, what would be his response if they gave him, on top of all the awards he's gotten, customer of the month? at his local Einstein's. Okay, he walks in. Sir, you're the 1,000th customer today, this week, so congratulations, you are the customer of the month. I mean, he's like, cr- tears? I mean, I, of all the awards, this is the one that I've wanted, customer of the month. No, probably what he would say is, you could thank you? I mean, you could maybe give it to that guy? It's not very important to me. I don't know if you know who I am. I, I've got My hands are weighed down by championship rings. I, I don't know if you know this about me, he probably would not care about being customer of the month at his local Einstein's. It's beneath him. Do you realize the best this life has to offer you and your significance is beneath you. It's beneath what you've already been given. God's like, just wait till you get to heaven and you realize who you are. You realize how valuable you are. How valuable are you? The heir of all things gave it all up to come to earth, born to a poor couple, nobody knew who they were, placed in a feeding trough, visited by shepherds, despised by humanity, beaten within an inch of his life and then crucified and mocked as he hanged there naked. The heir of all things became nothing to give you everything. He humbled himself to save you from your pride. He became broken to bring you healing into your life. The more we bask in that story, the more it untangles our irrational fear of insignificance. And for some of you, you're here this morning, and here's what's happening right now. Your life circumstances, your Heavenly Father, the God of the universe, He has been arranging the circumstances of your life for right now. He's gotten you here certain ways he's gotten you here and you're now realizing that the creator of everything, the one who made you and invented you is drawing you to himself. And he's saying, let me show you how significant you are. The son of God was nailed to a tree for you. And today is the day you can accept that. Today is the day he has waited for throughout all of history for this moment for you to say, yes, Jesus, you died on the cross to give me everything, to give me an eternity in heaven when I die. You've saved me from my sin. You've washed all my brokenness away on that cross. And today is the day you can accept that. I want to give you an opportunity to take that step right now. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Would you just take a second, if that's you, and just have a quiet moment between you and God? If that's you and you want to accept that this morning, just simply say this right there in your in the quietness of your heart between you and God. Say, God, thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for not being put off by my brokenness, by my unworthiness. Thank you for loving me and for knowing me from the beginning of time and having a plan to draw me to yourself and save me for all eternity thank you that you love me that much. I believe that Jesus and he alone can save me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.